0: Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome Cavalier fans. What an evening in Cavalier land. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. I am your lifelong fan host, voice of Fox Sports Radio, Bob Schmidt. We got lots to talk about, lots to celebrate. And despite the end outcome of this evening being that our in-season tournament has come to a close, I don't think anyone goes out of tonight feeling like we squandered an opportunity because how often do you win by 23 points. How often does this team specifically win by 23 points in a manner in which all of the many concerns we've heard voiced during the early part of this season, Evan Mobley's offense, Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland's cohesion, George Yang and the criticisms he's got for his play in the early part of the season that he has seemingly turned around. All of these things feel like a distant memory today because now the Cavaliers are victors of two straight games. Now the Cavaliers can look to this game as their largest margin of victory. It has supplanted their win over the Portland Trailblazers. They left it all out there on the floor. They did not take their foot off the gas. There was not a fourth quarter collapse. There was an end-to-end effort. And while I certainly found myself wondering early in the second quarter how we were down by 12 points, George Yang made short work of that, completely turned this game on its head, momentum swung our direction, and from that point forward, the Cavaliers imposed their will. Consider this. In the fourth quarter, the Cavaliers held the Hawks to 15% shooting. They shot four for 27. Donovan Mitchell made as many field goals as their entire roster in quarter number four. Which garbage time for the Hawks or not, that's when you should be playing the fastest tempo. They were firing shit up. More shot attempts there than any other quarter. And Trey, goose DeJounte, goose egg. Donovan revealed in the post game that the number that they were working with in terms of their optimal margin of victory was 20 points. Obviously, by the time that that point of the game arrived, they needed much more because Boston absolutely bludgeoned the Bulls to death. So those pursuits came to an end, but... If we can't be in the knockout round of the in-season tournament, I will gladly settle for a consolation prize of Trey Young putting forth his worst game of the regular season thus far. The four games leading into tonight's game with the Cavs, this man was on fire. He was averaging 35 points a game, 50% from outside the arc. It was Trey at his peak. However, tonight, this was far and away Trey Young's worst Offensive performance of the season. Three for 14 from the field. Now, again, this man isn't exactly a beacon of efficiency over the course of his career. He's more of a volume guy. But again, like I said, over those previous four games, he was rolling and he was derailed tonight. It's not just the efficiency, though, it's the shot selection because it felt like this felt like watching a game of NBA Jam where somebody is just firing up hero shots hoping to get on fire. However, it never came. And I looked just to confirm my general in-game vibes of the eight threes that Trey attempted. Five of them, five of them were from outside 30 feet. There are three of 14 games where you can live with the shot selection because you feel like, okay, it just wasn't falling for him tonight, but he worked to get good, advantageous shot attempts. It did not feel that way most of this game. It felt like Trey conceded. And in a game where he had the opportunity to really try to work and grind on Darius Garland, that's a matchup I would think that he has motivation to win because that's one of his high-end peers at the point guard position in the NBA. And Darius Garland outclassed him tonight in a big way. There was a sequence in this game in the late third where Darius Garland came down and splashed a three. And Trey Young on the other side, Darius fell. And when he fell, Trey lifted up and knocked down one of his two three-pointers. And it seemed like, oh, maybe this is what will wake Trey up. That will make some highlight reels. Maybe this is what is going to shake him out of his funk. But Darius put a close to that immediately. Because as the third quarter came to a close... DG picked himself up off the floor, got the ball, dribbled it over half court, saw who was guarding him, Trey Young. Allen showed like he was going to set a high pick and roll, and Trey just gave up. He weakly rolled off his body. He didn't even fight to contest it. And Darius Garland knocked down his second consecutive three-pointer in rhythm, sent the lead to double digits. Game, set, match, Garland. It was pretty reminiscent of what happened in that Raptors game. Darius hasn't been reigning threes in. There's been criticisms. He doesn't take him enough. However, just like in the Raptors game where he banged down two in a short sequence, he did the same thing here tonight. So let's talk more about the beginning of this game, though, because we could dwell on the third and fourth quarter, but really, it felt like the Cavaliers were in control throughout that stretch. It felt like when they wrestled control away from the Hawks, though, was in the second quarter with about nine minutes left because it was at that point that the Cavaliers called a timeout after a run by the Hawks put them up by 12 points. Now, the first quarter was close. It could have been a one-point game had Donovan Mitchell's three left his hand before the red light hit, but it didn't, so the Cavaliers went into the second quarter down by four. I didn't feel like we were playing bad, though. I just felt like the Hawks... Made a few less mistakes. They didn't have a single turnover in the first quarter. Uh, Bogdanovich was really good in that first quarter. He helped pace the way on an 8-0 run that opened things up just enough for the Hawks. But it did feel like that it was anybody's game at that point. And then in the early part of the second quarter, I thought Craig Porter Jr. had a particularly rough outing by his standard uh, in this game because how often have we seen him make turnovers? Period. Let alone two in a short sequence. And what entered the second quarter down by four, quickly, within three minutes, we were down by 12. Now, JB called a timeout. And we've got mixed results after timeouts. But this timeout proved to be immensely valuable because whatever was said, the result was one of the best sequences of basketball we've seen from George Yang during this Cavalier season, during his short, brief career with the Cavs. Because sh- right after that timeout, 12-point lead was cut to a four-point lead, and the Hawks took a timeout of their own. And every single one of those plays, George Yang had a hand in. First, he knocked down a three-pointer. Then, he hit a running floater after a guy closed out too hard on his three-pointer. Then, he contested a shot beautifully, stayed vertical, prevented the Hawks from scoring— Came down after that rebound, threw a dime to Struce who knocked down a three-point shot, and the Hawks immediately called a timeout. Now, the Hawks opened it up. In 90 seconds, we took it from 12 to 4. They took a timeout. They came out. They opened it back up to a 10-point lead. And every single one of those baskets came from DeAndre Hunter. Now, I think at that point, and Donovan Mitchell spoke about it in the postgame, about what it was that unleashed that small ball lineup in the second quarter. And he had this to say. George Dieng, um I think he, he's... He came out, hit a shot, got a stop. Ev came over, got... I think you got the rebound. Came back down, hit another shot. Like, you know, we were down was it 10, 11 at that point to come down and then change it to six or four, whatever it may be like. That makes or breaks games. You know, that that changes everything. You know, that could have easily turned into a 14 to 16 point lead for them. We're coming out, you know, not feeling great, you know, getting the crowd back into it. You know, but, you know, George is, that's, you know, the other night it was T-top. That changed the, the entire game, in my opinion. Whether it was Yang that lit a fire under Mitchell or whether it was Hunter. Hunter was the one primarily defending Mitchell tonight. And right after Nyang made that huge run, Hunter had a little spurt of his own. He scored six points in a row, stretched it back to double digits again. And then Mitchell really kind of took over late in the second quarter. He scored eight of his 40 points down the stretch there with less than five minutes left. And that included a, a couple of triples. Now, I wouldn't say that Mitchell shot particularly well. I know his final line makes it seem respectable, but he feasted inside. He missed nothing from inside the restricted circle. So most of his his missed shots were on his jumpers. He just happened to pile up a ton of made baskets inside the paint. And the other main thing to point out here is that while I'm talking about the scoring, Evan Mobley absolutely dominated in the second quarter. I Everybody knows I'm a fro advocate, but tonight... The correct decision by JB and for this roster was to lean into that small ball lineup because they were unbelievable in the second quarter, and Evan Mobley was a huge part of that. Obviously, he capped off the half by sending Trey packing for his third block, but he scored a lot of baskets by taking advantage of how slow-footed Capella was. I think his ability to dive those baselines and catch those lobs and finish around the rim and say what you will about Jared Allen is stronger. Than Evan Mobley, sure. But Evan Mobley's hands are just unbelievable, and he's so adept. He's just a little more wingspan on him, allows him to tip rebounds to himself and continue to pile up boards. And consider this. I should have led with this, because really, tonight, Evan Mobley was the star of the game, in my opinion. I know I've talked a lot about Mitchell and Garland and even Yang, but what Evan Mobley did tonight is unprecedented. This was his career high in rebounds with 19. But just For the sake of historical context, I looked up who has achieved similar success to Evan Mobley. 19 rebounds, 17 points, 7 blocks, and shooting over 70% from the floor. Because keep in mind, Evan did all of this on just 11 attempts, 8 of which he made. There are only 8 other men in the history of the NBA to do what Evan Mobley did. Nobody has achieved that feat since Shaquille O'Neal In 2004. Evan is just the second man this century to do that. And of the other eight guys on that list, six of them are Hall of Famers. So uh, if we want to project into the future, at least from a statistical standpoint, this accomplishment seems to be pretty rare and pretty noteworthy. Now, I'm the last person to say anything to denigrate Jared Allen, but I do think it's noteworthy. One of the big stories over the last few days has been just how proficient some of these small ball lineups have been in their small sample sizes so far that season, and that definitely continues tonight. Just heading into the evening, two of our most effective, based on point differential, lineups of this early part of the season have featured Evan Mobley at center, Mobley at center with Mitchell, Struess, Levert, and Yang, it's a plus 42, and Mobley at center with Garland, Mitchell, Struess, and Levert, that's a plus 64. Now, yes, that's on small sample sizes. The largest number of possessions has been that starting unit, which still leading into tonight was a negative point differential. So, at least analytically speaking, there are some Things that seem to support this idea that Evan Mobley can capably play the five and with shooting around him, we can excel. That doesn't mean it changes my stance on what I want to do with Jared Allen. I wanted to go away from him tonight because the results were coming with Mobley on the floor and Yang put forth one of his best efforts. This is a man, too, who uh, he has been very good over his last nine games. He's shooting north of 46% from three-point land. And that brings his season averages. After starting 0-8, remember, this is a man who now has got back up to 35% from outside the arc. It is coming. It is coming. And I do think it's very encouraging, whether these small ball lineups, whether their success sustains or not, just to have a viable alternative. Because I don't think it is viable to roll Evan out there at center for 35 minutes a night. I think it's nice we can stagger him with Jared Allen. I think it's nice to have looks that you can throw at different teams. But I also think it's nice to have fresh legs for Evan where we don't always have to make him bang with dudes like Capella. It can just be in shifts. And perhaps that'll increase the efficiency in the times we do choose to implement it. But it's certainly an encouraging sign because as Yang's found his rhythm and as True seems to be finding his rhythm here, those lineups look more and more deadly. So six of seven in the first half from Evan Mobley. And really, the only thing he missed was arguably a foul on Clint Capella that Darius Garland ended up cleaning up anyway. Uh, But... The big make of the game, of all of his many 17 points, three of those came off of a three-pointer, Evan Mobley, second three of the season, and first one since October 28th. A full month later, and Evan is raining triples. December 28th, mark it on your calendar. A barrage is coming. (laughs) How good did that feel? How did that—it was— Delightful. His stroke looked pretty smooth tonight. I need to fade this out. I can't help it. The crowd is going wild. Now, the second quarter, when the game hung in the balance, that was absolutely unbelievable ball from Evan, but he piled on some garbage time blocks in the fourth quarter. To finish with seven blocks, I, I mean, the scorekeepers didn't even know it was happening. At the end of the game, John Michael was saying that. It, 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 he had 17 rebounds when this box score was saying he has 19, and then it was saying he had six blocks when in fact he had seven. That's how fast and furious. They were coming at the end of the game. When it all became final, you realize that that fourth quarter saw Evan pile on four more blocks, and all four of them happened with less than four minutes left in the fourth quarter. So they got desperate, they got sloppy, and Evan got a statistical milestone that seems even more significant than it is. But I'll take it because... That's basically every Trey Young box score. When you realize that he gets 15 of those points by grifting at the free throw line, it makes the 40-point games seem a little less special. So you can put an asterisk on this one if you want, but Evan Mobley did it, and that means that over the last nine games, Evan Mobley is averaging 17 points and 12 rebounds on 66% true shooting percentage. Now, just to shit all over Scotty Barnes, I want you to realize what he's doing. This season, Evan has now cracked 60%. By comparison, the man that he bested last game, Scotty Barnes, this season, despite his many prolific counting number achievements, 19 points, nine rebounds, six assists, he is shooting just 55% true shooting percentage. So Evan, as usual, defensively incredible, efficiency incredible. Rebounding, incredible. And now amongst third-year players, Alperin Shengun is having a breakout season. Many would look at him and say he is now performing at the top of his draft class and his true shooting percentage is just 0.1 higher than Evan Mobley. There are only three men in the 2021 draft class who play more than 30 minutes a game and have cracked 60% true shooting. That is Alperin Shengun, Evan Mobley, And Herb Jones. Now, perhaps I'm a prisoner of the moment, but I would ask you, where does this game rank for you amongst Evan Mobley's games this season? I think the one that stands out for most people outside of this one would be the Indiana game because he scored over 30 points. He had 14 rebounds. Maybe more importantly than all that is the counting numbers may seem more impressive. 33, 14, a few blocks. That's great, but we lost by double-digit points to the Pacers. So that was a disappointment, similar to the way that I felt With Karis LeVert, when he scored all those points in the first quarter, it's great. But if it doesn't come with a W, it tends to lose a little of its luster. And tonight, it's not as if this was a particularly thrilling game. We pulled away and won in resounding fashion. But maybe it's just due to the fact that it seems like we have a lot of close games that I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth and diminish this accomplishment by Evans simply because we did it in a blowout, and he piled up some blocks at the end of the game. Now, a a couple other people, I think, weren't mentioning. You may think that I'm going to say Fro or Max Strews, and they were good. Uh, I mean, Fro was good on limited minutes. I didn't think this was his best game overall, but at the end of the night, if you miss only one shot and you come close to a double-double, uh, his second half was pretty effective. He had a longer leash, I felt like, then. And to finish the game without a turnover, with a solid 11-8, it's good, whatever. I don't Now, I want to touch on another player, and you may think I'm going to say Max Struess, because, I mean, he paced the way with plus-minus, knocked down a few triples, made his impact known, filled the stat sheet yet again. 11 points, 3 rebounds, 7 assists, 2 blocks, 2 steals, chipping in across the board. But the guy I wanted to talk about was actually... Isaac Okoro, who I thought had some very good moments in this game, including a stretch in which he ripped off a couple of consecutive baskets, uh, and he did it, finishing through contact, to go along with two blocks. He's not forcing the issue on offense, but it almost seems irrelevant at this point. Last year, when you're the de facto sixth man, sometimes starter, and you barely shoot, it stings. This year, when we've got Lavert and Yang and then Struess, all taking volume, it seems less relevant to me whether or not. And this could be, ultimately, I think this could be a good thing because while I wouldn't take his current minutes as an indicative of what it's going to be at the end of the season, he may get more, he may get around this, this may be it. Dean still is out of the mix for a little bit. Um, but if this is what it is, call me a dick, I think this might be good for us because we did not extend a Coro. And if we're getting the type of production that we're getting from Struis and Yang's heating up like he is and Karras, I mean, he carried us most of the early games of this season, despite cooling off a little bit here. If Okoro's role only needs to be, you know, 16 to 20 minutes a night and we don't need him to take volume shots, I think that price tag is going to be a lot more reasonable than many of us were fearing. I don't mind this current situation of every time Isaac did something tonight, I just felt like, Oh! That's a pleasant surprise. Nice block. Nice finding your way behind the defense and getting an easy bucket at the rim. I was very happy with Isaac's minutes tonight. Now, I already touched on Craig Porter Jr. Very short lease for him. uh, And I can't say that I fault JB because that game was starting to get away from us in the second quarter and he went away from it and it worked. So I wasn't upset that he didn't go back to Craig Porter Jr. Max Struess, as I alluded to. What more can you say about this guy? It's just amazing how impactful he's been in every facet of the game. When we brought him in, there was so much talk about how good he is—catch and shoot threes—and he takes nine threes a game. And it—and it was presented by many people. Like, and I'm not saying that I wasn't one of these people. I'm telling, I'm admitting to you, I had no idea he had this much to offer to our offense because, whereas coming into the season, I looked at Yang and Struess as the offensive options and. Koro and wade to a lesser extent to the defensive options seeing that game against the raptors where the the variety of ways in which drew scored in that third quarter there were plays that looked very much like Akoro this isn't just a guy that's hitting threes he leaked out in front of the defense twice he's so good at passing on the move okay last game all of his assists went to garland and allen this game yang mitchell and mobley I realize we talk about his connection with Mobley, and it's there. But as this season's progressing, what I'm feeling like is this guy will learn everybody to that same level. Yeah, the focus was getting Mobley going, because obviously so much of the fortunes of our franchise rest upon him. But Struce is finding ways to get everybody easy looks. And so much talk in this offseason was about the dollar figure, that he got contract-wise, making just over $15 million a year annually. I want you to consider this. Look at the guys around him. P.J. Washington, same dollar figure, 15 points, 5 rebounds, 54% true shooting. Dylan Brooks, 14 points, 4 rebounds, 60% true shooting. He's been exceptional. Dylan makes $6 million more a season than Max. So to come away, and finally, think about Austin Reeves. This season, 14 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists. Free agent Darling, guy who I myself said a team should throw a huge offer sheet at just to screw the Lakers primarily, but also because there was a very reasonable argument that he was worth $20 million a season. Instead, the Lakers get him back on what everybody agrees was a value contract, just shy of what Max Drews got. Max is outplaying him, or at least equaling him, 14-6-4. and four. And he's up to 39% from outside the arc. Did anybody expect that? If you say that you did, I would say the following. Lying and lying and lying and lying. And y'all are full of shit. Thank you, Norman. And thank you, Steven. So now we continue on to this next phase of the season where we could find ourselves in a very familiar position. Last year to end November, we were 14 and 8. Currently, we're 10-8. Excuse me. Moving forward, if we come away with victories against the next two teams, then the road gets a little tougher because we have a three-game stretch against some of the top teams in the Eastern Conference. First, the upstart Orlando Magic, surprising everyone, and flat-out balling, 12-5. Currently, Tied for the third seed in the Eastern Conference. And then it's a back-to-back against the Boston Celtics, the top team in the East. So if this next two games is light work, the games after that will be a challenge. But the knockout round. So following the game against the Pistons, the Cavaliers very possibly could be sitting at a 12-8 record. Shut your fucking mouth. No jinx. Now here's the other shitty part about that three-game stretch, the Magic, the Celtics, and the Celtics. The first Celtics game is the second night of a back-to-back, so we're going to go Magic-Celtics in consecutive evenings, and all three, sadly, are on the road. But that is a problem for down the line. Right now, one other thing I want to talk about. That will wrap up my Cavalier talk for the evening. Perhaps some of you saw a uh, a member of the Golden State Warriors make the news. No, it's not Draymond. Yes, He did say he wasn't sorry, he would do it again, blah, blah, blah. I mean, did we ever expect Draymond to walk back anything? No, let's not dwell on that. Still garbage, will remain garbage, will continue to be garbage. But Clay Thompson, mister, I guess his feelings just got hurt. I guess his feelings just got hurt. My, 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 how the tables have turned. You know, I'm just kind of shocked some guys take it so personal. I am too, Clay. I was shocked about the news this week. That when Tim Kawakami asked you a very benign question, uh, you launched that into some sort of uh, defensive, sensitive rant. Let me play you the question. This is Tim Kawakami. Kirk talks a lot about believing in his guys, especially the starting lineup, having patience, letting guys kind of, you know, find their game. How aware are you of that kind of patience and and how much do, do you value it? now i think we know where kawakami would have taken that but that's a pretty benign question he basically asked him how much he values kerr's patience to allow him to find his way and clay's response zero to 100 in a second what do you, you want me to bench me no no, no. Wait, it's like that's you want to bench some... wigs? <laughs> you want i don't to bench think us? i said that okay i mean you can suggest it. it's fine but i mean thanks steve i guess like, I don't know, sometimes you earn these things like patience and time to find yourself. And I think history will uh, is on our side when it comes to that stuff. Now, this is pretty standard Golden State Warriors fair. You win enough and your answer to everything is going to be, well, I know better than you because we've won a lot, so you can't question me. I mean, it's Draymond's M.O. That's his playbook on everything. I can choke a guy out because we won four championships, so why would I change anything? This is just kind of a toned-down version of that. And I, and. Truthfully, I respect Clay. He's a great shooter. He may find his form uh, at any point. I wrote him off last year, and then he seemed to play better uh, as time went along. But I will say, good God, is this guy sensitive despite everything he's about to tell you in the follow-up? You say that, do you, have you heard people say that? Or is, no, dude, I, don't I don't care what people say. Like They don't do what we do. I don't care what people say. At this point in my life, huh. next question. I like the little laughs. I don't care what people say. (laughs) But general rule of thumb, if you have to repeat yourself, it usually means the opposite of whatever it is that you're repeating. So in Clay's case, I don't care what people say. I don't care what people say. Yeah, you do. And here's another example in support of that. You may remember it. It's from the Jerry Sandusky scandal where that man allegedly diddled some children and Bob Costas, while interviewing him, asked him the following question. Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? Now, you may say to yourself, okay, let me put myself into the mind of a child molester. Wouldn't the answer there be a definitive, no, no, I didn't diddle those kids. That's what you would think. Now listen to the actual answer. Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? Am I sexually attracted to underage boys? Sexually attracted? Okay. He repeated it twice. If you weren't screaming at that interview, what are you doing? Say no! And it kept going. Now, the entirety of this clip, this is 13 seconds before we arrive at him finally saying no. Here you go. Here's the whole thing. Am I sexually attracted to yes. underage boys? Sexually attracted? You know, I, I enjoy young people. I, I love to be around them. Um, I, I, but no, I'm not sexually attracted to young boys. He finally got there. I mean, I guess give him credit for that. I would tell you this. If somebody asked me on national television... Are you sexually attracted to young boys? I would say no before they finish the question. In fact, I might even repeat myself, which I understand, according to my thesis, means the opposite, which would then mean, yes, I am sexually attracted to young boys. Don't aggregate that. But I I stand by my original Clay thesis, which is that he's very much bothered by all the rumblings that perhaps the Warriors would be better off putting Clay on the bench and changing up the starting lineup, at least for the time being. Now, as long as we're discussing oafish statements to the press from players who are uh, a little bit out of touch, we might as well hit on Paul George. Recently, Russell Westbrook got into another interaction with a fan who I'm assuming, based on Russell's postgame comments about, you know, his name and all that, that he probably got called Westbrook. And that's never going to stop because here's the thing. People are assholes. And once you let somebody know something bothers you, they'll never stop doing it. So Russell got into it with a fan and Paul George, Clipper teammate, was asked about it in the post game in terms of how he felt. He had this to say. Where do you draw the line in terms of what's appropriate trash talk and what crosses the line? Obviously, fans, you know, they pay their money to come to the game, um, so they feel they have some sort of entitlement to that um but at the same time you know you know nowhere else can people go to someone's job and you know disrespect you at your job um and it'd be okay hold up uh yeah no they absolutely can't do that i don't know if you've ever heard the expression the customer is always right but that originated in service jobs you know jobs that normal people have and uh In a lot of those normal jobs, people can talk to you any way they want. Shit, hop on the internet. People can sometimes lay hands on you, and you're expected not to respond. How many times have you seen people just hurling fast food back at some minimum wage worker because they got their order wrong? Hell, I saw a woman in a Starbucks take a shit on the floor, pick up the poop, and fling it at the worker. Meanwhile... Somebody calls Russell Westbrook, Russell Westbrook, and that's the deeply personal thing that I'm supposed to rally all my working class fellow fans to stand up for you millionaires for? You're out of your fucking mind, Paul. Comparing yourself to the people doesn't make the people say, hey, he's just like us. Let's support them. It just makes them resent you. For thinking that the difficulty of being called Russell Westbrook compares even remotely to what most people have to put up with at their job. It will never cease to amaze me how many athletes will try to generalize their job and parallel it to the normal working class person. It doesn't curry favor with people, it just makes them resent you for being so goddamn out of touch and completely lacking situational awareness. Telling someone who can get laid off on a whim with no severance, with no guaranteed salary that you have it rough because somebody said, boo, it's not having the effect you think it has. This is why people say athletes need someone around them who will tell them no who will tell them when they're being ridiculous. And Paul would be well-served to have that in this situation because he just willingly inserted himself into someone else's problem. When they asked him, he should have no commented it. Let Russell and his sensitive Westbrook fixation, let him deal with that on his own because it just lumps you in with the type of entitlement that most people think Russell Westbrook operates with. You didn't even need to be in this, but you simply can't. Help yourself. And Clay taking a fairly innocuous question and turning it into this arrogant, defensive rant. I'm sure he felt great about that in the aftermath. I really told him. They can't do what we do. I'm not bothered. I got my message across. The message you actually sent was, I'm deep in my feels at this point. So anyway, let's put a bow on this. This this is the end of the Fear the Fro podcast. But I will return with the Trailblazers game, and I want to thank everybody. This season downloads at an all-time high, and that is because of you. That is because of you spreading the word, the ratings, the reviews. Uh, It is greatly appreciated. And I'll tell you this. I look at a five-star review much like purchasing a ticket at a game. You do that, you can call me whatever the fuck you want. I'll just take the abuse. So till next time, this is the Fear the Fro podcast. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.